A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have, not lost, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You, are, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, the rooster crowed. The word of the Lord. Betrayal. Stories of betrayal stir us. They stir our sense of justice and injustice. In the movie Braveheart, which many of us have seen dozens of times, Mel Gibson plays William Wallace, the leader of the Scottish Rebellion, trying to overthrow English tyranny. The film turns when Wallace is going to meet with one of his close friends in Edinburgh and finds himself trapped and arrested, handed over to the English by his own fellow Scotsman. And that face that Gibson gives of betrayal and of hurt is one that we we viscerally kind of grab hold of and say, I'm with you in this, and this shouldn't have happened. 
The same is true in the famous words penned by William Shakespeare and Julius Caesar, which I've neither read nor seen, when he says, et tu, Brute, as he's being assassinated by the senators, along with one of his closest friends, Marcus Brutus. And he says, and you also? You too, Brutus? We have that visceral response to betrayal because it strikes at our sense of fairness and justice, of friendship, of loyalty, of everything that should be right in this world. And when you read the Gospel of John and get to his betrayal, the same sort of thing happens. Over the past few months, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and what you find is Jesus is the hero in the story. He turns water into wine. He feeds 5,000. He gives sight to the blind. And he proclaims good news to the poor and to the lost and to the needy. He's got to win. And so when he is betrayed and arrested, something in us says, this isn't right. Many of us have experienced betrayal on many levels. Sometimes a betrayal can be sort of the silly things like a little boy who's the only one who's caught You see, my friends and I had this habit of picking on one of the guy's little brother. He was two, three years younger than us, and he was an easy target to pick on. Well, one day when three or four of us were picking on his little brother, making him the brunt of all the action that was going on, the boy's mom came outside. When I turned around, I was the only one left. My good friend and his older brother was gone, along with the rest of the boys in the neighborhood. I got a strong berating, which I deserved, but I was more angry that they had abandoned me than that I got caught and was in trouble. We knew that what we were doing was wrong, picking on the little brother, but don't leave me, guys. You learn this on a harsher level as you get older, don't you? When you enter middle school or high school and you find that the friend that you shared a secret with has all of a sudden told two or three or 200 other people. Or when that friend that you were very close with stops inviting you, and all of a sudden you find yourself on the outs and excluded. Of course, sometimes betrayal is is far deeper and far more painful even than that. The statistics say that one in four adults in this country have dealt with sexual abuse. The vast majority of perpetrators are known to the victim. They are cousins or uncles, step-parents, teachers, ministers. Not every marriage ends in divorce, and not every one that does end in divorce ends up as a result of betrayal, but many do. Infidelity, where your closest trust with the person who is closest to you is ripped apart when you find out that they have abandoned you for somebody else. That sense of betrayal and abandonment that breaks so many homes apart tears the victims apart as well. When my grandfather was little, 12 years old, the age of one of my sons, his father ran out. Abandoning him, his mom, and all of his sisters. At age 12, he 
he had to leave school and get into the workforce. By age 16, he was working for the coal mining industry because his dad left. Many of us have dealt with that sense of betrayal and abandonment. And the result of being aware of this sort of thing is we learn not to trust people. Or or those of us with a sense of justice can also go around with a sense of superiority. I'm not like that, and I'll never be like that. But if our story today of Jesus' betrayal, denial, and abandonment by his friends tells us anything, it tells us that none of us are that far off. All of us, the Bible says, are broken. All of us fall short. All of us are sinful. And behind all of our good intentions and our sense of justice and loyalty is a Judas, a Peter, or any one of the disciples who fled that night. So I want us to see as we walk through this story, on one level, our own culpability, that we too are betrayers, that we too are guilty, that we too deserve justice and punishment. And yet I want us to see in the picture of Jesus being handed over that Jesus is heading towards the cross. And on the cross, Jesus was not only abandoned by his friends, he was forsaken by God for us. So, looking at Jesus' own betrayal should convict us, but it should also assure us that in Jesus there is a way out and a way of hope and a way of forgiveness. So, as we open up our passage today, we begin in John 18 with Jesus heading with the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. We've just spent the past several weeks in the upper room as Jesus has celebrated the Last Supper and given all of those words of assurance, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. I am sending the Holy Spirit, do not be afraid, praying for his disciples that they would experience the fullness of glory and the oneness and love with which he has called them to follow him. And then he takes the disciples and they head out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And there we find that Judas, the betrayer who we heard about earlier, has gathered a band of Roman soldiers and the officials of the religious leaders and is coming to arrest Jesus. Now, Judas has gathered a band. That that word is a technical term for a division of Roman soldiers. It usually meant 600 Roman soldiers, but could be as small as 200. So there is Judas gathering the religious officials as well as several hundred army guys coming with this massive division up the hill to arrest Jesus. You know, what's interesting about Judas is that nobody suspected him. Think about it. On that last night, as they're sitting around the table celebrating the Last Supper, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, all of us naturally would have been like, it's Judas. But none of them think that. So much so that Peter, who is one removed from the place of honor where John and Judas were sitting, leans over to to John, Peter does, and he says, ask him who it's going to be. Peter doesn't know. He probably suspects it's him. 
John says, who is it, Jesus? Jesus has to point out the one I'm going to hand the bread to. For three years, they had been walking around together. They knew each other inside and out. They had their inside jokes. They understood the personalities of each guy, and yet nobody suspected Judas. Because nobody can see inside of a person's heart. What what motivated Judas to follow Jesus at the beginning? Did he perhaps start earnestly? Oh, this is a chance to change my life but was never really willing to give his heart fully over to Jesus. He was just going through the motions, but didn't buy in. Or did he all along have false motives? This Jesus guy seems pretty popular and powerful. If I stick with him, I can get the money, the connections, the power I'm after. He shows his hand, as we read a few weeks back, when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, breaks open a pure nard, this expensive perfume, and pours it on Jesus. And Judas says, wait, wait, we should have sold this and and given the money to the poor. And John says he did that because he was a thief. All along, he'd been trying to collect money. And so here, possibly towards the end, he sees that his chance to make some money is coming towards an end, and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was not an exorbitant amount of money, but it wasn't a pittance either. It was three to six months' wages. Think tens of thousands of dollars. For tens of thousands of dollars, Judas betrays Jesus. You see, Judas shows himself that he doesn't actually want Jesus. He wanted the goods that he thought Jesus could provide. He was using Jesus to get what he was after. And the irony, of course, is Jesus is the real treasure. And yet there's Judas settling for a few months' salary. The religious, the Roman soldiers, Judas, come out to arrest Jesus, but they misread him. They didn't need an army. You know, Jesus and the disciples sitting up on the, val- on the top of the mount uh, where Gethsemane sat would have heard the hundreds of soldiers marching. They would have seen them coming with all the torches. They had every chance to flee, every chance to set up their army themselves. Jesus isn't going anywhere. He goes out to them. Whom do you seek, he asks. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. I am he. Three times in our passage it says, I am he. Didn't I tell you I am he? It doesn't actually say I am he. It says literally in the Greek, I am. This is that Greek phrase, ego a me, which was reserved for God himself. In the Exodus account, Moses sees the Lord in the burning bush and the Lord calls Moses to go and rescue the people from Egypt. And Moses says, who are you? Who should I say sent me? And the Lord says, tell them I am has sent you. That was originally written in the Hebrew, but the Greek translation is tell them ego me has sent you. And from that point on, that phrase held a unique place in the Jewish ear. 
You didn't just go around claiming ego a me unless you wanted to get yourself arrested. But that's what John records Jesus doing again and again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? I'm not just Jesus, the guy from Nazareth. I am. The Romans are astonished that he doesn't run or fight. The religious leaders who are there are shocked that he's still claiming that he's God. And Peter sees it all as an opportunity to start the war. He pulls out his sword, we read, and he cuts off the ear of some poor servant of the high priest named Malchus. Now, it's unclear, it's unclear whether Peter was incredibly skillful with a sword and simply meant to lop off the ear as a warning to everyone else to stay back, or if he was so awful that when he was swinging for the guy's head, all he could hit was the ear. My guess is likely the second. Here is Peter in all of his bravado and energy, ready to start a battle, and the most he can do is trim somebody's ear. You see, Peter has in mind the vision of a kingdom. Jesus has been talking all along about a kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. And Peter says, all right, let's go. I'm ready. He's thinking Jesus is there to overthrow the Romans and the religious elite. But Jesus quickly rebukes Peter. In what is very strong language in the Greek, put the sword in its sheath, Peter. Put it away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup is Old Testament imagery. It's an illusion that the Jews would have understood. The cup was the cup of the wrath of God that was poured out on the sin of man. Time and again, the Lord says, I will pour out my cup of wrath because of your sin and rebellion and idolatry. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to fight, I'm here to die. This is the reason I came. To drink this cup, to take your place, to bear your judgment, to experience the wrath of God for you. And so Jesus allows them to arrest him. And as the other accounts of this events record, the disciples all flee. They abandon Jesus. He's left all alone. And from here on, he walks by himself. And yet, even as he's doing so, the face of the Father is being pulled from him. He's being forsaken on every possible level. And I think that in this we should see that if we have experienced betrayal, if we have been hurt by people, if we have been left on the outside, if we know what it is to be deeply lonely, that Jesus gets it. He knows. He understands. He's with us. And so the band of arresting people have taken Jesus and they take him to the high priest's house for a false trial. 
Peter and another disciple who is unnamed followed to the high priest's house. And there inside the courtyard, Peter, this other disciple, some servants of the high priest and some of the officials and religious leaders are there warming themselves by a charcoal, a coal fire. And it's interesting, the details that are given in the passage, the details ground the events in real life scenario. They're inside the courtyard. These people are standing around. There's a fire, a charcoal fire. Warm yourself by it. And it's as if the author is inviting us to write ourselves into the story, to see ourselves in the place of Peter and say, what would you do if you were here? And then a servant girl turns to Peter. A servant girl was the absolutely lowest social caste that you could possibly achieve in that day and age. A servant girl was essentially a nobody. And she asked, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter is undone to his core. I am not, he says. And in the Greek, it's uk eimi. Not I am. A contrast to the one who when the arresting bands and hordes with their swords come charging after him says, I am. A lowly servant girl asks a simple question. And Peter says, not I am. That's right, Peter. You're not. Peter denies any association with Jesus three times. And Rembrandt has a good picture of it of the description that's given in the Gospel of Luke account, which says that once he had denied him three times, Jesus turned and saw him and made eye contact with Peter. And Peter, hearing the rooster crow, and Jesus' eye contact weeps and runs out of there. And you see in the upper right-hand corner, Jesus with his arms behind him looking at Peter as Peter is being questioned by a servant girl. You see, Peter's vision of Jesus had been overturned. Just days earlier, he had walked in with the crowds on Palm Sunday as everyone was shouting, Hosanna, save us, you're the king, Jesus. The kingdom was coming, and Jesus was clearly the king. But for some reason, even with several years of walking with Jesus, Peter didn't get the vision of the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. Jesus' kingdom was not the sort of kingdom that tends to be established in most revolutions, where there's usually some version of bloodshed, some grabbing of power, some attempt at wealth and control, and of liquidating the enemy. This is an upside-down kingdom, where power and control and wealth have nothing to do with it. This is a kingdom built on a cross. Jesus was explaining it time and again throughout his life when he said, this This is a kingdom built on those who have come not to be served, but to serve. The humble will be exalted and the exalted humbled. In this kingdom to live and to find life is to die and to sacrifice yours for others. The problem is, Peter had concocted his own idea about Jesus, his own idea of what Messiah should be. And when Jesus is arrested, his vision is shattered And so when he says to these questions, essentially, 
I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. He may be onto something there. It's quite possible he doesn't really know who Jesus is. I'm so glad this story of betrayal includes Peter and not just Judas. You see, Judas is always portrayed as the deceitful and greedy one. Peter at least steps out of the boat to walk on the water. Peter is the first one to confess, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet even Peter denies Jesus and abandons him. In other words, inside of each of us, is a betrayer, a denier, a deserter. But as I was reading and meditating on this passage this week, I kept wondering how. How does it actually play out? What does it actually look like? How do we betray Jesus? How do we deny him? I mean, sure, on a basic level, somebody could say, are you a Christian? And you say, no, I'm not. But I think there's ways each and every day when we walk as betrayers, deniers, and abandoners of Jesus. What does it look like? To the extent that we live without constant regard for him, or to the extent that we diminish the centrality of Jesus in our life, we're abandoning his place. All sin fits into betraying and denying him. Think about your own patterns as you walk into sin, whether that's going to food for comfort or needing to control everything or lashing out in anger at your family or dismissing the the purposes of God with your sexuality or turning in self-pity or wallowing in cycles of jealousy or bitterness or ruthlessness or meanness whatever your favorite sin is, the pattern goes something like this. When I'm tempted to sin, I'm being interrogated by my sinful self, probably with Satan right in there with my own voice. And it's not a servant girl who is asking me the questions, it's my sinful self. It's like I step back in the Garden of Eden and I have my own voice, not the snake, saying, Did God really say? Or this isn't as bad as some of those other people's sin. Or it's justified for you to think these thoughts. You see, the the tempter is very often my sinful self asking these questions. And time and again, my answer is simply to dismiss and deny Jesus. Jesus? Jesus who? When I then act on it in sin in word, in thought, in deed. I ignore or diminish Jesus in order to diminish my sin. I'm essentially abandoning Jesus just like the disciples. All sin and that process of walking into it is a reenacting of the betrayal, denial, desertion, and unbelief of this night. In other words, we are no different than the betrayer, the denier, the deserters. Like the disciples abandoning Jesus, we do the same thing as them. Whenever we go through our hours or days without even thinking about Jesus, Jesus has taken up residence in us 
and yet we will go long periods of time without giving him a thought. We are no different than the disciples running away when our thoughts don't turn to him moment by moment. We are no different than even Judas. Like Judas, who was simply using Jesus to, to, to get his own goal of wealth, we do the same thing whenever we come to Christianity simply for the blessing. If I go to church, God can't be that angry with me. Or when I want just a little bit of religion to keep my life on track, any version of compartmentalizing Jesus. Jesus, you can have a say on raising my kids. They need it. But I'm sure you have nothing to say about my materialism. We are no different than Judas, who goes to Jesus to get what we want. We are no different than Peter. Peter is assuming Jesus has come to lead a revolt. He has his own idea of what he wants Jesus to be, and we do the same thing. When we assume Jesus must be for my theological camp or my political ideology, Jesus is not necessarily Anglican or Baptist. And I don't think that Jesus is necessarily for a particular political party. I'm pretty sure Jesus neither watches Fox News Channel nor MSNBC. Everyone knows he watches BBC News. That's what the English tell me. Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. He's God. And when we assume that our theology or our politics or our ideology is Jesus, we make a little mistake of conforming him to our image instead of the other way around. Jesus says, I am. He is the I am. He's not whatever you want him to be. He doesn't fit your life, you fit his. And yet time and again, we are no different than the disciples, the betrayers, the deniers, the abandoners. But my purpose this morning wasn't just to make you feel guilty, although hopefully it did a little bit, but to show us the need for the gospel of grace. In walking through what Judas and Peter and the disciples do, we can see our own selves and realize the depth of our sinfulness and need and therefore the greater depth of our need of Jesus' provision on the cross. The gospel tells us it's not just the Romans, the religious leaders, the disciples who get Jesus wrong. The gospel tells us all of us do. All of us get him wrong. All of us betray him. All of us abandon him. All of us reject him. But the gospel also tells us that any of us can be forgiven. Any of us can be brought near. Any of us can be given life because of him. You see, on the cross, the very Jesus whom we abandon again and again was abandoned for us. He cries out, as it's recorded in one of the other Gospels, hanging from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing betrayal and abandonment at a deep soul, spiritual, and eternal level. 
that by grace none of us will ever have to experience. He's being forsaken by the Father, which is the fullness of the wrath of God being poured out on him, the wrath of God for our sin. The pain of the cross is not the nails. It's the Father pulling back. He drinks the cup we deserve to drink. He's cast out that we might be brought in. This week is Holy Week. It's Jesus' final week. And for us, we focus on the cross. So my encouragement to you this week, it's kind of a darker encouragement. Grieve and mourn this week. Grieve and mourn your own sin. Mourn the injustice of Jesus' death. Allow yourself to be implicated. But also consider what held him there. It was not the nails, it was his love for you and me. And hear the words of pardon that Jesus speaks in his final words from the cross when he says, it is finished. All your betrayal Desertion, abandonment, embarrassment, rejection, misplaced hopes, using Jesus for your own end, all of your sin is finished. It's taken care of. The cross is God for you. God betrayed for you. God forsaken for you. God crucified for you. And thank God, It doesn't end there. Let's pray. Lord, in the heaviness of Holy Week, we see our own culpability and sin, that we are no different than Judas or Peter. Help us to be clear about our own sin and guilt. But God, help us to see in the cross the good news of a Savior who was crucified for us, who has taken the wrath upon himself and given us pardon, forgiveness, life. Amen. Victor